Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. This is your host, Brian Bostock. And before we get started today, I just have a few announcements. I mentioned in the beginning of the first episode that you can reach out to me, but I failed to give out my email address. Uh, As of right now, my email that you can send any questions, comments, concerns to will be thechronicfailurepodcast at gmail.com. Um, as for now, that's where I'm going to have everything sent to. It is in the works to set up some sort of website and have all mail go to that. But as of now, I do not have that set up. Uh, so you can just send it to that email. We also have a Instagram account. It will be the chronic failure podcast on Instagram. You're welcome to send Uh, messages to us there and you can also view the photos that I kind of have come out along with uh, each of these episodes. One last thing that I wanted to mention in the last podcast uh, when I was talking about the eggshell thinning, a very important note on that. What really got scientists and researchers interested or worried I should say was the fact that it was bald eagles that were eating contaminated fish and then going on to have thin eggs in which the birds were sitting on and breaking and then also essentially laying eggs that never hatched so they were either being sat on broken because they were thin or they just weren't hatching. I think that's pretty important uh And I I had it in my notes, and somehow I skimmed over that, so I apologize for that. Other than that, I don't really have too many other announcements. Let's go ahead and hop into this next episode on the oil crisis in the Nigerian Delta. I hope you enjoy. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat from toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. It is the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. Of all the regions on the planet, few compare in their magnificence and abundance to the Niger Delta. The Delta is a sprawling 7,700 square mile swath of rainforests, freshwater swamps, and mangroves located in Nigeria on the southern coast of western Africa. Meandering through this region are the fan-shaped sediment-rich waters of the Niger and Binu rivers and their tributaries. These channels flow down to the Gulf of Guinea and empty out into the Atlantic Ocean. The Niger Delta also boasts some of the highest biodiversity on the planet. It is home to countless endemic wildlife, such as the pygmy hippopotamus. It is also where you can find some of the most incomparable vegetation in the world. Forming a sash around the Nigerian coast, for example, are its mangrove forests, These forests are unparalleled in their function within the Niger Delta ecosystem. This area is also rich in culture and human life. It is home to 30 million people and contains more than 40 different ethnic groups, 
speaking about 250 dialects. The people of the Niger Delta have historically relied on this fertile floodplain for survival. Its arable land has produced abundant yields when farmed, and its waters, teeming with fish, has provided endless bounty for fishermen. Today, however, this region is tragically known as one of the most polluted places in the world. This is because below the silty waterways of the delta, black gold lays in wait in seemingly endless supply. Black gold as in oil. The Niger Delta is petroleum rich, and the hunger for its oil has fueled industry in the region for over 60 years. This has caused a toxic legacy. Disasters of unmatched proportions have plagued this region, the magnitude of which are felt in environmental and socioeconomic capacities to this very day. The pollution in the Niger Delta is caused by this oil industry. Oil spills have degraded the environment and rendered it contaminated and unsustainable. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the toxic legacy of exploration and the extraction of oil in the Niger Delta. Historically, exploration for commercial oil in Nigeria has always been undertaken by larger-scale petroleum companies. These companies were awarded licenses by the British monarchy and granted the right to explore large acreages of land in Nigeria. They could also afford the technology required for these explorations. One of these companies is Shell, also called Royal Dutch Shell. The first commercial oil discovery in Nigeria was made in 1956 by the Shell Diarchy Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria, a consortium of two familiar companies that we know today which is Shell and BP. The discovery was made at Oloibiri, Bielsa State. Bielsa State is in the south region of Nigeria, in the core of the Niger Delta. Two other notable wells were discovered shortly after, Afam and Bomu, in the Ogani Territory. Ogani Territory sits in the river state of the Delta. Oil was discovered in 1956, and extraction began shortly after in 1958. The discovery of this oil would ultimately change the course of the Delta's history. Now, Nigeria became oil-obsessed. To this day, Nigeria is the second largest oil producer in Africa, the first being Angola, and it is the 12th largest producer worldwide. The oil industry quickly became Nigeria's main export and biggest source of revenue. Some suggest that this is to a fault. In an investigative piece titled Nigerian Oil and the Disappearing Money, aired in 2020, Sarah Gathman states that Nigeria's oil production accounts for up to 75% of its revenue. She goes on to say that because Nigeria depended so much on its oil production, when global oil prices bottomed out in 2014, it sent the country into a recession, and it is still attempting to climb out of this recession. Goffman further points out that oil extraction in the country has always been led by international companies, with only a small percentage of the industry being undertaken by domestic companies. Shell has retained about 40% of the oil production in Nigeria. 
So you might be asking what makes this so significant? Well, Nigeria's oil production landscape is shaped by the fact that Nigerian crude oil is exported to refineries overseas and then must be imported back into the country after it has been refined. In other words, the lack of technology, such as local refineries, hampers this domestic profitability of the oil industry. There's also profit-sharing structure in place that cuts out any local compensation from the oil industry. Oil companies systematically import laborers as opposed to hiring members of local communities. And this system creates unrest with the inhabitants of the community's housing extraction operations. In Sarah Goffman's piece, correspondent Chika Adua, a Nigerian-American journalist who currently works for Vice, states that the profits from the oil industry are used to pay back the national debt incurred by the recession. She also claims that these profits are distributed among the government elites and lawmakers. This means that the money from the oil is not reinvested in infrastructure, schools, hospitals, or any meaningful ways in the eyes of the Nigerian people. Unfortunately, this sets the climate for an economy of violence. The negative impacts of oil development in the Niger Delta are felt on both an environmental and a human level. The oil extraction policies in the Delta have created a perfect storm for the advent of oil spills. This is because by its nature, the economic philosophy of foreign multinational oil extraction is, is exploitative and foregoes the will to implement a balanced resource extraction policy. There is also a notable absence of accountability and remediation. So let's explore this a little bit further. So when we say that this region is plagued with oil spills, how many exactly are we talking about? Well, we know that the spills are happening, but there's no accurate system for reporting these spills. So why is that? Well, one reason is that companies have a vested interest in under-reporting spillage. Also, some spills in remote areas that are challenging to access allow them to go undetected for long periods of time, or if at all. A comprehensive study published in 2018 by Inagai Chinedu and Chikwuma Kelechukwu Chukwamika pooled together verifiable data in order to paint a better picture of the situation. This study states that there were 12,000 oil spill incidents recorded between 1976 and 2014. In this period, about 3.1 million barrels of oil were spilled in the Delta. The same study states that conservative estimates have shown that Nigeria's oil reserves were at about 35 billion barrels in 2018, forecasting that oil activities in the Niger Delta could easily continue for at least another 35 years. A United Nations Development Program report published in 2008 stated that there were 6,817 oil spills between 1976 in 2001, also accounting for a loss of around 3 million barrels. In 2011, a United Nations report proclaimed that cleanup efforts aiming at reversing the damages caused in the Niger Delta due to oil spills would take 25 to 30 years. The numbers may differ slightly, but either way the data is damp. Large quantities of oil have been spilled in the Niger Delta's onshore sites, swamps, and waterways.
As we touched upon the beginning of the episode, oil exploration and extraction in the Niger Delta is complex, and the climate of this industry has set the stage for the inevitability of oil spills. Let's take a closer look at the causes of these oil spills. So when it comes down to the causes of the oil spills, it kind of boils down to two camps. Grossly speaking, the cause of the oil spills is either attributed to multinationals by way of negligence or as local inhabitants as a secondary effect of sabotage and theft. As we stated before, oil extraction began in the Delta in the 1950s. At this time, the oil development landscape was comprised of many smaller oil fields that peppered the landscape. Keep in mind that this landscape was essentially lush rainforest, freshwater swamp, and mangroves. The landscape was demanding and hardly the type of topography where one could easily build a road. Companies like Shell built extensive networks of pipelines carrying oil from wellheads to flow stations. Unfortunately, the more pipelines, the more opportunities for leaks. Also, these pipes were often on the smaller side in diameter and built above ground, rendering more susceptibility to breakage. As you can imagine, the standards in place at the time that operations were being put into place, which were the 60s, 70s, and 80s, differed from the ones in place today. So here we're looking at extensive networks of pipes, some even built more than 50 years ago, and many nestled in remote places. As it were, these pipes began to corrode, and the weakened pipes would burst or leak, causing spills into the environment. This theory implies negligence on behalf of the companies, as it is reported that Nigerian law states that pipelines are to be inspected every five years. If companies were actually doing this upkeep, old pipes would be systematically replaced, and the spillage would be curbed, which obviously was not happening, and has not happened. Companies like Shell and Italian giant Eni state that there is a contingency program in place to address spills, but the data suggests otherwise. In 2009, Amnesty International spearheaded a lawsuit on behalf of the Bodo fishing community in which Shell was found liable for the oil spills that decimated the riverways and fish in the region, effectively robbing the community of its livelihood. Shell was eventually held accountable in 2011 in a symbolic victory. The trial highlighted the shortcomings of companies like Shell and Eni when it comes to addressing spills. One complaint was their slow response time. Companies have a responsibility to respond to spills regardless of their cause. The sooner they visit the site, the quicker they can stop the leak and begin cleaning the area. Government agency guidelines say that they should visit within 24 hours, but Amnesty International found massive delays, with some spills continuing for months after they were reported. Shell visited the site within 24 hours of a spill, occurring on just 26% of occasions and eight of the worst response times recorded were shell response time. But at the end of the day, the slowest time was recorded when any took 430 days to respond to a spill in Bielsa State. For more than a year, 
Oil leaked out of the pipeline into nearby swampland and rivers, and this contaminated the water that people drank and washed with. These delays obviously point to serious negligence. Now here's where things get a little dicey. Companies are liable for damages resulting in poorly maintained pipelines. Senior Forbes contributor David Vetter documented the 2011 landmark ruling held in the Dutch court in The Hague that declared Shell responsible for compensating the Bodo locals as a result for poorly maintaining their pipes. However, this case also sheds some light on the legal strategy that these companies rely on to skirt this responsibility. So if a pipeline is deemed damaged by sabotage, companies claim that the responsibility does not fall to them. The companies colorfully deem this term illegal third-party interference, which is essentially jargon for I didn't do it. Luckily, the outcome of the case suggests otherwise. So as I just mentioned, oil development in Nigeria is dominated by foreign multinationals. These companies have created an economic landscape that relies on foreign labor and leaves the communities that it extracts from with compromised livelihoods due to environmental degradation. Farming and fishing are no longer an option. This creates a climate of unrest for the inhabitants of the Niger Delta. So there's actually a saying in Nigeria. It goes like this. Money from oil is the national cake. Everyone wants a piece of it. And it is there for the taking. So how do locals get a piece of this proverbial cake? Since multinationals do not typically hire locally, other systems of compensation derived from situations of economic pressure are created. Necessity is, after all, the mother of invention. Illegal refineries nestled deep in the rainforests, and the pillaging of oil tankards and the bunkering of oil from pipelines have been cited as ways that many have attempted to get a piece of this national cake. Bunkering is when a pipeline is tapped illegally, whereby a hole is drilled in a pipeline and oil is siphoned off. This oil is then sold on the black market. This process can damage the pipe, resulting in leaks and spills that degrade the environment. And of course, bunkering is done with the aim of not being detected, which means that these leaks can go unreported for a very long time. The overall issue of oil theft in the Delta is very complex. In 2019, it was estimated that 22 million barrels had been stolen and sold. The inhabitants of the Delta have had not only no economic windfall from the oil production in the region, but have also suffered the loss of their traditional livelihoods, which compounds the problem. Dokubo Asari, who is of the Ija people and a somewhat controversial figure, put it this way in his correspondence interview with Arise News in October of 2022. You can't impoverish the people. You can't destroy their environment and expect them to roll their hands and watch. There must be a will to change the narrative in the Niger Delta. But when that will is lacking and we are not able to change this behavior that everything belongs to everybody, no, it does not belong to everybody. These things are found on the land of the people 
and oil productions affect the economic activities of these people. It affects their environment. It affects their morale. There must be a will to correct this imbalance, this injustice that has been perpetuated in the oil industry. So it turns out Wasari leads an armed militant group in Nigeria, the likes of which has increased as the oil conflict in the country has systematically fomented civil unrest due to deceptive practices. His statement shows one facet of the problem. It also illustrates how oil spillage can ultimately result from an oppressive system. In a 2012 study titled Analysis of Oil Pipeline Failures in the Oil and Gas Industries in the Niger Delta Area of Nigeria by Achibi Neke and Asiji for the Proceedings of the International Multi-Conference of Engineers and Computer Scientists, figures place the blame for oil spills on mechanical failures 17% of the time, corrosion 15.5% of the time, and operational activity at just under 13%. These three causes combined account for 45% of the oil spills and can be traced back to poor management on behalf of these multinational corporations. In contrast, third-party activities are listed as accounting for just under 21% of spills, whereas natural hazard falls at just 2.2%. The remaining 30.85% of oil spills has been categorized as unknown. While these numbers can appear murky, our source material does support that most failures fall under the banner of multinational negligence. Now, it is worth noting, once again, that the exact data is not widely available. As we said previously, companies have a vested interest in under-reporting the number of spills and spills may occur in remote areas and remain undetected for a long period of time. Now that we've dug into the causes, let's take a look at some of the effects that oil spills have had on the Delta region. Now our first effect would be social unrest, and I have a quote from Satha Nubari, and it goes like this, Our farmlands are unfarmable, our rivers unfishable, it is safe to say the Ogani people have died a long time ago. Now, Nubari, an Ogani farmer, tweeted this quote accompanied by the picture of a sign located just outside of his home. The sign read, Prohibition, water not fit for use. The image and the accompanying quote were shared during a televised segment of The Stream, hosted by Femi Oki in 2015. Now, I will have a photo of this sign posted on the podcast's Instagram page, uh, so you can go over there and check that sign out. Now, these are powerful words from a place where, at the time, civil unrest had walked hand-in-hand with an environmental disaster for over 25 years. Here, we'll examine how one of the effects of the oil spills was social unrest. In the 1990s, the world attention was called to Ogani land, which is also referred to as Ogani territory, and it's in the River State region of the Niger Delta. Now, you'll recall that two important wells were discovered in the 1950s in Ogani territory. That was the Afam and the Bomu. These wells were originally tapped by Shell, which 
was steadfastly extracting oil even to this day. Consequently, oil spills resulting from these shell activities had been contaminating the air, land, and water in the region for decades. In 1990, human rights activist Ken Saro Wiwa began working for the movement for the survival of the Ogani people, also known as MOSOP, M-O-S-O-P. This organization advocated for the rights of the minority Ogani people. One of its tenets specified that it would campaign peacefully for change. Now, MOSOP aimed to advocate for a fair share of proceeds from oil extraction in the Ogani territory. The organization also demanded remediations for the environmental damages caused to the Ogani lands. And the main plaintiff in Mosop's cause was Royal Dutch Shell. In 1993, Mosop organized a peaceful protest in which 300,000 Ogani people marched to draw attention to their people's plight. The march actually worked as international eyes were drawn to Ogani land. And during that same year, the Nigerian military actually occupied Ogani land. In 1994, just one year after, four Ogani chiefs were brutally murdered. Sarawiwa was then accused of inciting the murders and arrested by the Nigerian government. He, along with eight other Mosop counterparts, remained imprisoned for one year before ultimately being found guilty and sentenced to death. They would be known as the Ogani Nine, and the trial was marked by corruption. And actually, the defendant's counsel even backed out as testament to the rigging at hand. A cavalcade of witnesses ended up stating that Sarawiwa had been involved in the elders' murders, only to be recanted later. Some witnesses even stated that they had been offered cushy jobs and bribes by Shell. The executions were ultimately carried out, and on November 10, 1995, the Ogani Nine, including Sarawiwa, died by hanging, and his last words were, Lord, take my soul, but the struggles continue. And today, it is widely accepted that the murder charges laid against the Ogani Nine were trumped up in order to quail that resistance. And so this was the climate of unrest in the 1990s. Sadly, it is but an example of how many ethnic groups in the Niger Delta are written out of the narrative of wealth being cultivated around them. To this day, Nigerians cannot depend on the wealth created by oil extraction in their country, as demonstrated by the continued exploitation and extraction by international companies, degradation of their environment, and the lack of financial reinvestment in the country from oil profits. Now let's turn our focus on habitat destruction and subsequent loss of livelihood. So oil spills cause habitat destruction. They pollute the air, land, and water. The current state of the Niger Delta is a testament to this. The people of the delta once relied on its rich soil for farming and plentiful waters for fishing in order to survive. These were their livelihoods, but the environmental degradation of the delta rendered these activities impossible long ago. Oil spills leach into the soil and render crops inedible. Furthermore, as the years pass, yields dwindle on those crops that do survive. 
in a September 2022 article written by Erenze Chijoke, farmer Ebakuro Warder is, is quoted as lamenting the pitiable size of her yam and cassava harvest, stating, This is what we have been dealing with since the oil spills started. And she continues, It is better we don't even cultivate because our crops die after planting, and we must replant repeatedly. As long as we dig the soil, we find crude oil during planting. Some species of cocoyam have disappeared. So it appears that agricultural productivity has faltered in the region. But how and why does oil extraction affect this farming? Well, according to an article written by Joseph Akpodoje and She Salau, published in the Journal of Environmental Economics in 2015, quote, Oil spills cause great damage to Niger Delta communities due to the high retention time of oil in the soil occasioned by limited flow. This prevents proper soil aeration and affects soil temperature, structure, nutrient status, and pH, and ultimately, crops are destroyed. So this study also explains that in an ecosystem such as the one present in the Niger Delta, destruction or alteration of any type will spill over into other parts of the ecosystem, as everything is connected. The study also goes on to say, oil spillage exacerbates the process of deforestation, which indirectly affects forest biomass and agricultural productivity of the land. Oil spillage also affects agricultural productivity directly through direct impacts of an oil spill on arable land, which destroys both cultivated and fallow land. The impact of an oil spill on both cultivated and forest or fallow land is measured using forest biomass. The forest biomass is referred to as the proportion of the total fallow and forested land affected by oil spillage. So as noted by the World Bank in 1995, resource degradation in agrarian economies is directly related to agriculture. So in the context of the Delta, this problem is exacerbated by oil spillage, which destroys the forest biomass. So their conclusion is that there is a linkage between land degradation activities and oil production and distribution activities as they affect the agricultural productivity and production of the Niger Delta of Nigeria. In other words, the oil is in the soil and it's affecting its fertility. These lands that inhabitants of the area have relied on for farming are becoming increasingly barren and farming is gradually becoming an unsustainable practice, which is very interesting because like oil is being shipped out of the country and having to be imported back in, as this gets bad enough, these areas are going to have to also import food because they can't grow it locally. It's going to put more strain on the socioeconomics of this area. Another environmental casualty of the Delta's oil spills are its storied mangrove forests. Mangroves by nature are incredibly valuable as carbon sinks. 
These unique forests also provide wood that inhabitants of the delta have historically used as a natural resource for generations. Mangrove forests also hold another important resource, one that is not commonly measured quantitatively. In a study conducted by Godstein K. James, Jimmy Odojoki, Sylvester Osagi, and Saba Ekachukwu, Peter Nuilo, and Joseph Akinidi in 2013 for the International Journal of Biodiversity Science, it is suggested that, quote, much of the wetland valuation literature is focused on the economic value of wetlands. However, wetlands such as mangroves also exhibit social values that are not directly ascribable to the ecological or the economic domain, but which are nevertheless essential for the proper functioning of society and human well-being. Such social value of wetlands has been curiously called cultural services of ecosystems, cultural capital of ecosystems, social cultural perspective of critical natural capital, and socio-cultural value of ecosystems. They continue to say the social value of the wetlands within the context of this study is based on people's views of their wetlands for ethical, religious, cultural, and philosophical reasons. Hence, for many people, wetlands are considered as source of subjective well-being that is closely associated with deeply held historical, communal, ethical, religious, and spiritual values. So, in other words, the value of mangroves extends well beyond its economic importance. And these mangroves are also highly susceptible to oil pollution since they breathe through pores in their bark called lenticels. If their bark is covered in viscous oil, they effectively choke to death. It is also worth noting that mangrove forests serve as habitat for many endangered animals, including manatees, and act as hatcheries for fish. Speaking of fish, another important source of revenue and survival for the inhabitants of this area comes from fishing. The delta is home to many endemic aquatic species, and in 2017, the Food and Agricultural Organization estimated that the delta produced up to 2.2 metric tons of fish per year to be consumed domestically. In 2018, a specialized study was conducted by Izzy Aswagwu, Anna Safin, and Esiogin Olefa for Covenant University, Ota Nigeria at the International Institute for Development Studies in Wilmington, Delaware. They claimed that this study differs from previous studies on environmental degradation of the Niger Delta and implications on agricultural productivity by specifically examining fish production from the perspective of analyzing data on freshwater fishing. So, essentially they're saying the question of environmental degradation was supported in this study by focusing on the effects of freshwater fish populations. The results were actually undeniable. The study showed that the empirical tests confirm the adverse effects of increase in oil spills on fish production in Nigeria. The oil spills are usually due to continuous incidents of vandalism and corrosion of oil pipes, 
which destroy aquatic life and pollute the environment such that agricultural activities become impossible in the affected areas of the Niger Delta. The long-term effect of an oil spill incidence is usually a reduction in crop yield and death of fish. This study corroborates the findings in Akpogoje and Salau's 2015 study that oil spills are a major impediment to agricultural activities in the Nigeria Delta region for the country. The toxic legacy of the oil in Nigeria Delta is death and destruction, and it's essentially land lanced of its natural bounties and people left alone to fend for themselves. But the negative effects don't stop there. The effects of the oil spills can be immediate. For example, fish can die instantaneously as a result of exposure to the toxins released in the water. However, some effects of oil spills are covert and very slow. The degradation of the environment impedes the succession of some species as they are unable to reproduce or survive in an environment choked of oxygen by the sludge. One concept introduced in the study led by Asogu and Olefa suggests that these toxins, by way of bioaccumulation, find their way into human bodies as well. This sentiment is best explained by studies synthesized by Agolino in 2000 and Gionu et al. in 2015. And for those of you who don't know what et al. means, it just means and all, and that means that there are other researchers involved in the study. Instead of listing them all out, you just put it all. So these synthesized studies are saying it's now known that health risk is not averted by abstinence from fish killed by spilled oil. Some of the fish and animals that escape this instant death from the pollution are known to have taken some of the toxins into their bodies which in turn get consumed by humans. And this in turn causes infections on humans coupled with other side effects in the form of genetic mutations. Life expectancy in the Niger Delta is just 40 years of age, and this is almost 15 years less than the rest of Niger. And humans are, after all, also a part of their respective ecosystems. As such, the effects of an ecosystem under attack are felt amongst its human populations as well. Oil exploration and extraction in the Niger Delta has caused negative impacts on the health of its inhabitants. In 2013, Dr. Best Ordniwa and Dr. Sayafa Brizabi issued an interpretation of published studies titled The Human Health Implications of Crude Oil Spills in the Niger Delta. This study aimed to weigh in on the annual post-impact assessments conducted through the years to assess the impact of the hazards generated by the oil industry in the Delta from their professional standpoints as healthcare workers. But these reports, as noted, were lacking contribution by healthcare professionals. So to start, the report presents data indicating that radiation levels within oil spill sites are often up to 45% higher than other Niger Delta communities, and that the concentration of naturally occurring radioactive material in surface waters are often higher than the World Health Organization's recommended maximum permissible limit for drinking water. 
So in short, the soil and waters are clearly contaminated with carcinogens, according to all the data that they compiled. In addition, the study stated that, quote, a review of the study showed the widespread presence of constituents of crude oil in the biophysical environment of the impacted communities. The presence and quantity of these constituents are known to be capable of exerting some acute and chronic or long-term adverse health effects. Known carcinogens like bezoapyrene and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon or PAH were respectively found in surface water and soil of the impacted communities. Like other known carcinogens, they do not have any safe levels as even a few molecules of these can be genotoxic. The review also goes on to say the activity of these known carcinogens probably explains carcinogenicity reported in the animal studies. The difference of the concentration of pH in the ambient air was also given as a reason for the highest prevalence of certain types of cancers seen in Port Harcourt compared with Ibadan. So basically, they're saying the presence of oil spills is correlated to high levels of cancer um, in these affected regions. Um, so we already know that contaminated soil decreases crop yields, but what happens to the crops that do grow? Well, so this review of studies also amassed data suggesting that the resulting crops lacked nutrients. So for instance, the, the study indicated that ascorbic acid content of water leaf was reduced by 36% and that the protein content of cassava was reduced by 40%. The deterioration of food quality overall led to a 24% increase in child malnutrition in the affected communities. Furthermore, the study states that due to bioaccumulation, heavy metals were also found in food crops. This is exemplified in a 90% increase in concentration of lead and a 95% increase in cadmium in pumpkin leaves. So these heavy metals have documented negative health effects on inhabitants of the affected regions, and the study claims that the concentrations of the potentially toxic lead nickel, and cadmium showed some level of bioaccumulation in food crops and that the food concentrations of lead in the surface water and food crops exposed children in the impacted communities to 0.2 milligrams of lead daily, assuming a daily consumption of 2 liters of water, 1 kilogram of cassava, and 250 milligrams of pumpkin vegetable. And so this is up to 5 milligrams per kilogram body weight per day known to cause cumulative damage in children, a possibility further enhanced by the high prevalence of iron deficiency anemia in the communities that can increase the rate of uptake of lead into the body. Now, based on dose response analysis, it is estimated that an accumulation of 25 micrograms per kilogram of body weight of lead in the body results in a decrease of at least three IQ points in children and an increase in systolic blood pressure of approximately three millimeters mercury. 
or about half a kilopascal. Now it also goes on to say the concentrations of cadmium in the surface water and food crops exposed members of the impacted communities to 0.2 milligrams of cadmium daily, which is more than the 0.03 milligrams per day reference dose for a 60 kilogram adult. Now cadmium is regarded as a cumulative toxin because of the human body's ability to excrete just 0.001% of the amount that's ingested in a day. Although it is considered probably carcinogenic, most chronic toxicity affects the kidneys, bones, and liver and presents mainly in postmenopausal women as itai itai disease with severe osteoporosis, osteomalacia, renal dysfunction, and normochromic anemia. All in all, it is safe to say that the presence of bioaccumulated heavy metals in the soil have documented negative effects on the inhabitants of these affected communities. And this ranges from cancer and child malnutrition to kidney disorders, osteoporosis, and anemia. Aside from the heavy metals being in the water and food, Another side effect of oil extraction is called gas flaring. Gas flaring is a cost-saving measure undertaken by companies whereby natural gas is burned off in order to separate it from commercially available oil. So this releases pressure from the oil extraction operation and creates massive flumes of CO2 and methane-rich fire into the air. This practice is discouraged as it releases toxic components into the air and it contributes to global warming and it's for this reason that gas flaring was actually banned in Nigeria in 1984. However this practice does still go largely unabated in the delta. So what are some of these documented effects of gas flaring? Well, as we mentioned earlier, gas flaring releases microscopic toxic particles into the air. And these particles combined with smoke are referred to as particulate matter. They are recycled into the atmosphere where they permeate the soil, water, and people in the affected regions. And also, these particles travel large distances away from their source. So I, this is mainly going to speak on the effects of gas flaring for the region. But with enough gas flaring, you know, those particulates can travel a very long distance and be affecting other communities in distant regions. Now, according to a report by Nigerian Environmental Rights Action Group, Friends of the Earth International, published in 2005, Gas flaring output is characterized as a mix of smoke, more precisely referred to as particulate matter, combustion byproducts, including sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxides, and carcinogenic substances such as benzopyrene and dioxin, and unburned fuel components including benzene, toluene, xylene, and hydrogen sulfide. The Canadian Public Health Association has noted 250 identified toxins.
Many environmental and health agencies have published excellent reviews of how exposure to these pollutants impact human health. According to the United States Environmental Protection Agency, many scientific studies have linked breathing particulate matter to a series of significant health problems, including aggravated asthma, increases in respiratory symptoms like coughing and difficult or painful breathing, chronic bronchitis, decreased lung function, and premature death. There is also documented evidence that exposure to benzene causes leukemia and other blood disorders. Now, the methodology used in order to calculate the adverse health effects of gas flaring is simple. Data was collected in order to establish how much gas on average flows out of the stations in the Bielsa state region of the Delta. They estimated that on average, stations spew about 800,000 cubic meters per day of gas. They then used these values and applied findings from a study undertaken by Canadian scientists to determine what kind of exposure the inhabitants of the affected area were being subjected to. The results were published and are as follows. It is possible to estimate the impact on ambient air quality of typical 800,000 cubic meters a day flare by examining data obtained by Canadian researchers who measured pollutant emissions of sweet gas flares in Alberta, Canada. Their data showed that 1. Small flares of 8,600 cubic meters a day would elevate particulate matter levels to 0.23 micrograms per cubic meter at a distance of 1,325 meters from such flare. And then two, the same flare would elevate benzene levels by 0.025 micrograms per cubic meter at a distance of 5,000 meters from that flare. These pollutant emissions are directly proportional to the size of sweet gas flare. Hence, based on Canadian data, an 800,000 cubic meter a day gas flare would elevate ambient air levels of particulate matter by 21 micrograms per cubic meter at a distance of 1,325 meters from that flare and would elevate ambient levels of benzene by 2.3 micrograms per cubic meter. So from this information, it's possible to gauge the extent of human exposure. According to the World Bank, human exposure to particulate matter causes the following increased rates of adverse health effects. So 6.72% premature deaths per year for each increase of one microgram per cubic meter for each 100,000 persons, 1,690 respiratory illnesses per year for each increase of one microgram per cubic meter for each 100,000 children, and 32,600 asthma attacks per year for each increase of one microgram per cubic meter for each 100,000 asthma sufferers. So assuming conservatively that 40% of the population of Bielsa State are children and that 5% of the population are asthma sufferers, 
particulate matter emissions from gas flaring at the 17 onshore flow stations in Biolsa State would likely cause each year at least 49 premature deaths, just under 5,000 respiratory illnesses among children, and 120,000 asthma attacks. And according to the US EPA, human exposure to just one microgram per cubic meter of benzene represents an elevated 1 in 100,000 lifetime risk of cancer. There are, however, other forms of pollution stemming from gas flares. The noise emitted by flumes ejecting particulate matter often reach about 86 decibels. In an October 2022 article for the Nigerian Tribune, Justice Nwafor documents the effects of noise pollution and says, besides air pollution, noise pollution has deep implications on the health and development of the residents, especially children. The United States Environmental Protection Agency says, apart from tinnitus, which is described as a ringing or buzzing sound in the ear, repeated exposure to noise during critical periods of development may affect a child's acquisition of speech, language, and language-related skills such as reading and listening. And he goes on to say that there are other effects from gas flaring as well, such as eye and skin irritations. Now we know the air, soil, and water is poisoned, and the health effects of oil pollution in the Delta are wide-ranging and undeniable, and these effects are cancer, asthma, blood disorders, learning disabilities, eye and skin problems, and malnutrition. So we know the history, and we know some of the issues and effects of those issues. So what about solutions? Well, the bleak environmental and socioeconomic landscape currently present in the Delta lies in stark contrast to its potent natural beauty and the remarkable resilience of its people. It may be one of the most polluted places on the planet, but its people are fighting and the future may not always be as desolate. In order to usher the Niger Delta out of its current state, Efforts to find solutions will have to encompass both the environmental and the human elements of the problem. With that being said, let's take a look at the solutions underway to curb its destruction. One of the ways to fix environmental problems is through bioremediation. This means using natural organisms to consume or break down pollutants in the environment without having to resort to extracting and disposing of them. This process is efficient and time-saving. In October of 2022, Dr. Noichi was awarded the John Maddox Prize for engaging communities in conflict to address pollution in the oil fields of the Niger Delta with research. Her work involved using vegetation to bioremediate the oil-soaked soils. But her work goes even deeper than that. Noichi claims that going green is not the only key to successful rehabilitation of the environment. She says that another key component is including communities in restoration projects. Now, she is a biochemist and was interviewed by Gigi Lee in March of 2019 for Chemistry World magazine, where she states, 
quote, it's a problem we in Nigeria face right now, but I believe there will be many researchers that come into this field and UN bodies to help fund more community-related projects where we can get more community engagement so people can see their role in using science to develop their community and have a healthier living. We can make improvements with science. Later on in a profile by the BBC detailing her historic win, which she was the first African woman to win this prize, she states, First I meet the community chief, the women's leader, and the youth leaders. And then she goes on to say, Speaking pidgin, or the local language, and using traditional knowledge helps build trust. She explains, People get excited and feel like scientists because they're working with us researchers to fix the problem. She also says we also learn from them. They have planting techniques that we don't. They teach us how to make the solution work in their area, she explains. This international approach leads to holistic long-term healing where the land and its inhabitants are the benefactors. She believes that people should focus on restoring contaminated land in order to make fishing and agriculture and agriculture viable once again, as opposed to focusing too much on financial compensation. Just because you're getting financial compensation doesn't mean you're going to fix the problem. You have to have people like this that are pushing to actually do the work for remediation, and I'm sure this financial compensation would help in that, but without people like her, the financial compensation does nothing but line people's pockets, which we know has already been an issue, lining the pockets of people and the money not actually going to any good use in remediation or local infrastructure. Now along with working with the inhabitants for remediation, incorporating the inhabitants of the Niger Delta into the oil production sector could be beneficial as well. Hiring locally would incentivize inhabitants to the Delta not to compensate themselves by bunkering crude oil from established pipelines. And additionally, employing locally for cleanups paid for by international companies creating these disasters would provide employment options for people whose livelihoods have been robbed from them because of these oil spills. Now, we mentioned at the top of the episode that the landscape of oil exploration and extraction in the Delta is characterized by a flawed system whereby oil is exported out of the country due to too few domestic refineries. Furthermore, the oil industry is corrupt, with the bulk of the public money obtained from oil operations being siphoned off to the government elites and lawmakers as opposed to back into the national treasure. This is mainly because the regulating body of the oil industry is but one branch of its biggest oil corporation, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, the NNPC. The NNPC oversees all oil operations in Nigeria, and it collects taxes and licensing fees from foreign operators. The NNPC has often been accused of corruption. A notable example of this is when in 2016, 
it failed to pay 16 billion U.S. dollars in revenue to the Nigerian government. Foreign companies will also rely on tax flight to save money. They can sell their products to one of their subsidiaries at a lower cost in a tax haven and then resell that product to other buyers at full price. And they can also underreport the number of barrels produced, therefore lowering the amount of taxes that they have to pay. So in other words, declaring lower profits means they will have less taxes to pay. In 2021, Nigeria passed the Petroleum Industries Bill with the goal of cleaning up its oil sector. And according to Sarah Gathman's report for Start Here, aired in January of 2020, the Nigerian government has started publishing annual audit reports of its oil industry. It has also began demanding unpaid taxes and compensation from foreign companies. The report also mentions that Nigeria is aiming to diversify its economy in order to lean away from foreign involvement. One of the ways that it is doing this is by building refineries in order to employ the local Nigerians and refine their black gold domestically. So at the end of all this, the issue of oil exploration and extraction in the Niger Delta is complex to say the least. But at its core, it is a tale of exploitation. The effects of the oil spills are environmental and socioeconomic in nature, and they point towards an extreme imbalance. An economy that structures itself outside of nature omits the important aspect of life on this planet, which is interconnectivity. Therefore, the solution to this problem must be multifaceted and aim at restoring balance. The main solutions gravitate around autonomy for the people and a redistribution of wealth. Again, the situation in the Niger Delta illustrates how everything is interconnected. We as humans are part of the ecosystems that we live in. If one of those ecosystems is wounded, all other parts are going to suffer on some level. As such, the healing process must also be holistic, incorporating communities into the restoration of their environment and giving Nigerians a fair slice of their national cake. Hopefully this week's episode found you interested in learning more about the Nigerian Delta. Next week's episode... We've got something a little bit different. This will be our first episode that includes a court case against 3M. The story surrounds the city of Cottage Grove, Minnesota, a wholesome and fitting name for a city on the front line of the American dream. The city on the banks of the Mississippi River was once known for being home of the state's first dairy and wheat operations. Today, it is known as ground zero for a chemical disaster whose tendrils have extended well beyond the United States. In next week's episode, we'll examine the price of innovation and how a cluster of cities in the American Midwest fought back and won against a corporate Goliath. Please like and share this podcast. I would greatly appreciate that. That's the only way that we're going to grow. Uh, subscribe if you would like to hear more from 
myself and also go make sure that you like and follow our instagram page the chronic failure podcast and also any questions comments and concerns can be sent over to the chronic failure podcast at gmail.com i look forward to hear from you and as always thank you for listening 